This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Monday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Thanks for joining us here today. You can join in the conversation, 403-974-8255. We have a lot to get to on the program this afternoon. As we look ahead to 2024, I think there's some optimism that the end is in sight when it comes to taming inflation and maybe shifting from a period of higher interest rates to interest rate cuts. Bank of Canada obviously is being very cautious about all of that, mindful of the importance of getting all of this right, and maybe even mindful of some of the mistakes and missteps they made, made at the beginning of this crisis. And there was certainly a criticism of the Bank of Canada, other central banks for that matter, for not recognizing uh, you know, the threat that inflation was posing and how big a challenge this would prove to be. So it's important for central banks to get it right. And so making that determination about having tamed inflation to bring down interest rates, you know, it's important that uh, the Bank of Canada uh, not make some of the same mistakes. So easier said than done, perhaps. But this is the focus uh, of the end of year note uh, from our next guest here, Andrew Grantham, senior economist at CIBC Capital Markets, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, in terms of getting inflation back to that target range, how, how close to that do you think we are right now? Uh, it all depends on how you look at inflation. Like the Bank of Canada has looked at inflation in a lot of different ways over the last couple of years, trying to figure out what the underlying trend is. Really, when we look at inflation within Canada, if we strip out shelter costs, which are rising either because of the mortgage interest costs, because the Bank of Canada has, risen in, has raised interest rates, or because rental prices are rising because of the rapid growth in population. So if we strip out those um, kind of in inflation numbers from the shelter costs, which really the Bank of Canada can't control when it comes to interest rates um, because they're supply-driven or they're driven by what it's doing itself in terms of raising interest rates, then we are actually already back to a 2% inflation world. And we have already been back to that 2% inflation world for a couple of months already. So, you know, we have had success, a lot of success in already getting inflation under control. You know, for the bank's perspective, I mean, obviously, you know, they, they don't want to keep interest rates higher than they need to be. But clearly, the, you know, the Bank of Canada is concerned about easing up too soon. So how fine a line is that that they have to walk here? It is a very fine line. You know, they really don't want to be cutting interest rates too early because they don't want demand to kind of come surging back and drive inflation again and drive a resurgence of inflation. But then again, they also don't want to cut interest rates too late because the unemployment rate has risen. Consumer spending in Canada has been very sluggish. It's, it's very clear that households are hurting from these higher interest rates. And so, you know, they will not want to cause um, an undue period or an undue long period of this pain that households are feeling. 
How damaging would it be to the bank's credibility if, you know, here we are, let's say, at the start of 2025, and we're looking back and saying, boy, the Bank of Canada got it wrong again. They waited too long or they acted too soon. How important is it that they, they get this right? Well, credibility is very important for any central bank because that's the way that you convince people, households, consumers within the economy that when inflation does deviate from your 2% target, which it is bound to at certain points of time, because there's things outside of the bank's control that, you know, they, they just can't control, um, you know, like the, the war in Ukraine that broke out last year, which uh, kind of drove, you know, inflation uh, for, for quite a period. So, you know, there are those shocks that happen. So central banks need that credibility in order to convince people that when these shocks do happen, they can get inflation back to 2%. So that is very, very key for any central bank, not just the Bank of Canada. When it comes to, you know, the, the start of all of this, when we started to see inflation creeping in, and the Bank of Canada wasn't the only central bank to get it wrong, how, how fair is all of that criticism in hindsight? Um, it's not particularly fair because a lot of economists, um, ourselves included, probably didn't point it out at the time that they were making a mistake. But when you think back to the pandemic itself, when you think back to, um, you know, the use of that word transitory in 2021, when inflation did start to accelerate, you know, the, what central banks did, the mistake that they made was that they treated a economic downturn um, or sluggishness within the economy as, as it was recovering in 2021, they treated that as if it was a demand side force that was raining the economy down, that was restricting activity. Whereas really it was a supply driven um, force because we had the pandemic, we had the shutdowns, that's a supply constraint. Um, as soon as restaurants were allowed to recover, demand also recovered in yeah. 2021. We had a slowdown in the economy because of supply chain disruptions. That was a supply constraint. It wasn't due to weak demand for autos that people weren't buying them. There just weren't any available. So the common mistake that central banks have made is treating demand shocks or supply shocks, sorry, within the economy as if they were demand shocks. And, you know, we have to be careful of not doing that uh, in the future and making that same mistake but only in reverse when it comes to, you know, the timing for, for cutting interest rates. When we look ahead to, to Canada's economy in 2024, I mean, things are pretty flat right now. We may be close to, to recession. In fact, I guess we'll see what the, the fourth quarter data for 2023 looks like. But, you know, the hope that we we'll see some recovery later this year, how much of that is dependent on what the Bank of Canada decides to do? It will be very dependent on interest rate cuts because more and more households are refinancing at these higher interest rates. Just how much higher those higher interest rates are depends on what the Bank of Canada does in terms of the timing of its cuts and what financial markets expect it to do in the future in terms of uh, future interest rate cuts. And you know the, the the problem for the Bank of Canada at the moment is that we have this weakening in growth. I do believe that is demand driven. People just are being more cautious about their spending in a higher interest rate environment. It's not necessarily supply driven as it has been in the past. And so you have that weakness in demand, but we're not entering a recession yet because the level of spending was already quite subdued because we never allowed the economy 
to fully recover from the pandemic. So we have this very weird situation at the moment where you know, household spending, particularly on a per capita, per household basis, is already quite weak. But we haven't actually entered a technical recession because we are already starting from quite a low level of spending mm. and a fairly low level of economic activity. Well, we're just two weeks away, just over two weeks away. January 24th is the Bank of Canada's next rate policy announcement. Do you think we'll get some clarity at that point in terms of where this is all headed or what are you going to be watching for? So I think what the Bank of Canada will have to do at their next, um, at their next uh, rate decision is kind of drop the, the threat that they've been making to raise interest rates further. As you yourself said earlier on, we seem to be kind of teeter on, teetering on the edge of a recession. It doesn't make much sense for them to be threatening to raise interest rates even further when we may be entering a recession or at least close to entering a recession. So we think the first step for the Bank of Canada in terms of that path that we will follow to eventual interest rate cuts will be firstly in January later this month to drop that threat of higher interest rates. And then by Q2, whether it be April or our current forecast of June, that's when they will actually start um, reducing interest rates. That will be a little bit kind of longer wait than people will hope for, than financial markets are currently expecting. But when they do start to cut interest rates, we do think those cuts will come fairly quickly because they do have to prepare the economy for 2025, 2026, when there's a lot more mortgages that come up for renewal, people who bought during the pandemic at the very height of house prices and at the very low uh, of interest rates. We'll see how it plays out much more. CIBC Capital Markets at CIBCCM.com. Andrew, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Perfect. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Andrew Grantham, Executive Director, Senior Economist for Economics and Capital Markets with CIBC. So uh, just a little bit uh, more of a deep dive into his year-end note, looking at some of the challenges the Bank of Canada faces going into 2024 and the pressure on them to get this right to not ease up too soon and allow inflation to come back, not prolong this period of higher interest rates. Uh, that he says could create a prolonged period of sluggish economic activity uh, and carry over into 2025. So January 24th, just over two weeks from now, is the Bank of Canada's next rate policy announcement. I think a lot of people are going to be watching closely for some hints, some indication uh, of where this is all going. And yeah, look, if you've got a mortgage coming up for renewal this year, next year, this is a big issue right now, isn't it? And there's a lot of Canadian households uh, that are in that boat right now. And so that could have huge ramifications uh, for Canadian households and for the broader economy. When it comes to Canada's immigration system, for someone seeking to move to Canada to become a permanent resident or a citizen, for understandable reasons, a, cr a conviction of a crime would be a problem. If someone's been convicted of a crime in another country, uh, that's something that Canadian officials would consider. Uh, assuming that's also a crime here, you know, something like murder or assault or drug trafficking, human trafficking, being involved in a terrorist organization, these kinds of things. If we recognize those as crimes and you've been convicted of that kind of a crime in another country, uh, your application could be revoked or refused. But if it's not something that Canada would recognize as a crime, if someone was convicted in a country of being gay or convicted of apostasy or something like this, then, then we wouldn't consider that a serious matter. That's not a crime here. 
Which brings us to the case of uh, a Russian dissident, Maria Kardasheva, who has lived in Ottawa since 2019, who left Russia in 2019 because it was pretty clear where things were headed. Uh, so she works uh, in Ottawa, as mentioned. Now, she's trying to become a Canadian citizen. Now, uh, in 2022, late in 2022, she learned uh, that she had been charged by Russian officials uh, under this wartime offense of disseminating deliberately false information. And she's been convicted, even though she's not there, and faces uh, time behind bars. Now, that's all the more reason for her to stay here. The problem is, it seems as though immigration officials are viewing this conviction as legitimate. Uh, because, uh, according to, to what's been filed here, uh, that this is something that's a comparable crime in Canada, which is really bizarre. Reading right off the uh, Global Affairs Canada website, where it says Russian authorities have eradicated media freedom through blocking Internet content, imprisoning journalists, and adopting fake news and defamation laws. So how do we reconcile this? A very concerning and confusing case. Joining us for some thoughts on all of this and more on this law in Russia. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and European Studies at the University of Toronto. Uh, Professor, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Um, hello. Good afternoon to you and your listeners. Um, when you first heard about this case and, and the reasons that were being cited for you know, possibly denying this woman's citizenship here, what was your reaction? Uh, yes, as you said, it's a very concerning case, and when I first heard about it, I was quite frankly shocked um, that um, Canadian immigration officials would respond in this way to um, what is clearly a, a political offense that is being used in, in Russia to suppress um, criticism of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, the fact that she was, uh, you know, basically put on trial and convicted, even though she wasn't there, her lawyer wasn't able to, to file any kind of defense, and then she gets an eight-year prison sentence. I mean, what, what, just, what does that alone tell us about uh, justice in Russia right now? Well, you're absolutely right to point to that issue. I mean, it's, it's not just the, the simple question of the, the simple fact that this law is, as it's written, meant to suppress criticism of the Russian government's policies. But also, as you said, the procedural issues in this case, that, that she was not permitted to mount a, a serious defense. And um, to your question, it's, it's really not at all surprising because um, political trials in Russia are not conducted up to the standards of, those in of trials in democratic countries. The government would obtain a conviction against anybody who wishes to convict. What do we need to know about this this law? And was, was this brought in specifically in, in the aftermath in response to the, the invasion of Ukraine? Yes, that's correct. So um, Russia has, has been using different tools to um, silence critics of the Putin regime for many years, but there's no doubt that this, this law is a kind of escalation of, the, uh, of, that, of that effort or, or a, a serious new weapon in the arsenal of the Russian state to silence people who wish to express their views openly about um, political matters, particularly the war in Ukraine. So what it does is essentially make it a crime to um, discredit or to, 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 as you said, to spread false information about the Russian military. In practice, what that means is that any kind of criticism of the war itself as a policy or of the way the war is being conducted can, can result in punishment. Um, so um, this has been studied already by some of my colleagues, and there is a, a range of, of sanctions that the government has been imposing in these um, sham trials. In some cases, 
is simply a fine, um, often in cases where the person is not particularly prominent or they've simply been expressing their views incautiously in private conversations or in the workplace. But there have been a number of cases involving prominent opponents of the government um, where lengthy sentences such as this one have been imposed. So um, one dimension of this case that's worth noting is the fact that the Russian government appears to think um, that this woman is, is a major opponent who needs to be both silenced and, and also used as a kind of um, example for others. I think that in particular, they wish to intimidate Russian citizens living abroad um, to let them know that they could be punished if they engage in this kind of behavior. And if they plan to return to Russia, um, they should, to be blunt, keep their mouths shut. Um, it's worth noting that that many people have already left Russia for particular for precisely this reason. Anyone who has uh, any kind of journalistic career and wishes to remain um, to remain an honest journalist has a very hard time operating in, in Russia right now, for example. Right. And when it comes to Canadian laws around misinformation or, or spreading false information, you know, in, in that kind of a law, in, in a society that takes these matters seriously, there would be the opportunity then to, to demonstrate that, that what you were saying was actually true. Now, with this Russian law around disinformation, I mean, obviously, then it's, it's authorities who are deciding what, what is or isn't true. There doesn't seem to be any kind of an opportunity for an accused to make that case themselves. No, there certainly doesn't. And that obviously is a very serious problem with this prosecution. But I think I would just like to emphasize what for me is the most fundamental problem with it, which is that it criminalizes tips. So here's the scenario for comparison for your readers to um, your listeners to think about. You know, imagine that during the, the Afghanistan operation, some Canadian citizens had protested, as many did, um, our involvement in, in the Afghanistan mission and said that it was misconceived or 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 criticized aspects of the Canadian government's handling of the war effort, that speech would be protected by, by the Charter. It cannot be criminalized. It is a, a basic aspect of freedom of speech in democratic societies to, to um, criticize government officials and government policy. And this Russian law simply um, dispenses with that. So that's part of why I was so shocked that, that the Canadian immigration officials who were responsible for administering um, citizenship um, um, process um, couldn't see this because to me it seems quite transparently obvious. Well, it does. Now, I, I guess there's still the opportunity maybe for the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration to get involved here, but but how, how might this be handled moving forward here, do you think? Well, I, I hope that, um, that, that this um, very blatant error will be corrected before it reaches the level of the Minister. I understand that there is an appeal process in which the applicant can, can present her argument that this is not um, equivalent to a Canadian law. Just to maybe make give one further piece of context here, um, the law that the government is saying is comparable to the Russian um, statute is is one that um, essentially makes it a criminal um, offense to spread libel about somebody else right. by means of telecommunications. So, as as you probably know, libel so basically defaming somebody or or saying something that's false and damaging about them is generally a matter for civil law, right? So you sue somebody if you think they've libeled you. In this specific case, the government has made it a crime to libel another person. What, but I think it's important to remember here that this is about protecting individuals from damage to their reputation by malicious people, right? So yeah. you can't go around um, spreading false statements about other people that are going to ruin their lives or their livelihoods. But the Russian law is not at all about that. It's simply about protecting the government from being criticized. It's completely different in its purpose.
Well, and it's it's an I don't know if it's, I hope that's not the intent, but in a way, I mean this this offers some legitimacy, some cover to to the the Putin regime, doesn't it? By essentially saying that what's in the criminal code of Canada is is a comparable to to this law in Russia. Yes, you're right. I mean, it's it's a very embarrassing thing for the Canadian government to do, and um, it's the kind of thing that, as you said offers cover to the Russian government. I, I honestly am completely bewildered that this decision was handed down. I, I, I suspect and I am hopeful that it was simply um, an error by, by, um, by a member of, of the staff who was not all that knowledgeable about the situation in Russia and that it does not represent any kind of um, official policy at higher levels of the ministry or, or the federal government. I think it's only fair to say that the Canadian government has been very clear in its public statements that a Russian persecution of, of war resistors and critics of the war is, is wrong and not consistent with um, democratic values that Canada espouses. So I, I do hope that it will be promptly corrected. Indeed. Well, we'll see what all goes from here, but appreciate your insight on all of this, Matthew. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been my pleasure. Likewise, all the best. Uh, that is Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and European Studies at the University of Toronto. So done a lot of research uh, around this law in Russia. It was brought in in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine. It's pretty clear what its intent is. So for Canadian immigration officials to say, well, you know, we have a comparable law here and, and offer some validity to this conviction is just baffling. And welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on uh, kind of a chilly Monday afternoon uh, in the city of Calgary. And uh, it's going to be a cold, wintry week. I mean, it is January after all, but uh, winter certainly is uh, arriving now finally this week. Uh, a lot more still to get to this afternoon. We'll get to more of your phone calls as well. But uh, right now, I want to tell the story, an interesting story, uh, out of Indian Head, Saskatchewan, a company based uh, in that small town in Saskatchewan that's doing some pretty important work. And in fact, is pretty in demand right across North America and beyond, uh, because it does something that, that no one else really does anymore. And when it comes to, to photography, imagery today, I mean, it's all, it's all digital. And I think now increasingly there's a lot of people that, that really have no connection uh, to, to the, uh, the world of film or developing film. Uh, but it was once, obviously, the way in which photos were taken. You'd get photos developed. That was a thing which really isn't anymore. So the idea of being able to, to go back and retrieve film off of old film rolls, if you're in need of that, it's, it's hard to find someone who can do it. Well, enter Film Rescue International, as mentioned, based in uh, Indian Head, Saskatchewan. They do this work. And, you know, to a lot of people, it's pretty important work, not just in terms of their own personal stories, what they might find, you know, up in the attic, Something that maybe once belonged, some old camera or, or lost roll of film uh, to a deceased loved one. But there's some interesting stories uh, that have come out of this as well. So joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon. Uh, one of the folks behind this operation, Gerald Fryer, is a film archivist at Film Rescue International. Gerald, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, hi. I'm told. Yeah, hi. Good to have to be there. Yeah. yeah, well, we appreciate you making some time for us here. And so it's pretty interesting what it is you guys do. And I know there's some interesting stories about some of the work you've done. But tell us a bit more, first of all, about what it is, what kind of services Film Rescue International offers. Yeah, as, 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 as you mentioned before, so Film Rescue International is quite a unique place for for all and old analog 
we call it lost and found film. So uh, it's mostly about, well, when we're talking about private film, it's mostly about uh, people found something when they're cleaning out grandma or grandpa's house or uh, cleaning up the house, the attic, a basement, and then they will try to get these developed. And um, and you can't go to these drugstores anymore because they don't exist anymore. So, and now um, this is now film rescue is, can can do this because we know uh, how all that works. So, and a lot of people they send us uh, films from yeah from we, we can that is like all, from all over the world. We got stuff from the states. We got stuff from Europe, uh, from nearly everywhere. And um, so, and it's mostly films. Oh, it's movie film, it's still film, starting from, let's say, from the 1930s up to the 1990s. So how difficult a job is this? And I guess, does it depend on how old the film is or what kind of condition it's all in? Like, what's the challenge involved? So the challenge is that uh, it's not... Uh, uh, a standard process that uh, these one-hour photo places used before. So it's something special. So uh, we have uh, more than 20 years' experience in processing these old film, and um, this is a kind of uh, it's, it's, it's a part of our film rescue uh, success, and also it's a part of our film rescue um, secret because uh, we we this is our special recipe we use that and it's it's a, it's a kind of analog process but it's specially made for these uh, old film material we just recently processed um, I think it was the oldest film uh, that was ever developed it was from 1889 so it was a long time ago it was in a camera and it came from the, the original camera came from Australia, but and then it was sold to a guy in England, and he sent us the film for processing. And believe it or not, we got one image out of that. Wow. Old, well, yeah. <laughs> one of the stories uh, that, that got a lot of attention, and this was just a couple of uh, months ago, this was a camera that was found. Uh, from, I guess, about 50 years ago. And this was a, a deadly uh, expedition, some American climbers in Argentina, and there'd been a mystery about, you know, what had happened to them. And so decades later, one of their cameras was found in the snow. And now enter, yeah. enter Film Rescue International. How did you guys get involved in that? Um, we are we are in in contact with with a lot of media, with a lot of museums, archives, libraries, and and yeah. So if people are looking for a place to to process these kind of films, they they that, it's not it's not a surprise for us. They are ending up at, here in Indian Head at Film Rescue. So and uh, yeah. They, people they ask us if we can help yes and we said we, we could and uh, and luckily um, that these films they were um, let's say they were they were stored in a freezer because they were they were buried in ice on uh, one of these Argentinian glaciers and um, that was uh, for us that was the best thing that could ever happen so they were ice cold so they were stored without no light without no moisture exposure uh, so that was we were really happy to that because we got really really good pictures out of that yeah so they looked like shot yesterday 
I know, that's, that's wild. There was also the story, too, I was reading about uh, a photographer from the 1960s, Charles Daniels, uh, who uh, had a lot of photos that he took over the years of some really well-known musicians and other figures in the 1960s. Uh, and then this was all sitting there for, for decades. Here's, here's another yeah. example of, of where you guys got involved. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this, this was my job last year, and uh, it took me nearly a year to... to, to not to process, but to digitize all that. And this is one of the amazing stories that we, we have at, at Film Rescue. But this, the Charles Daniels story is something really, really special. So he he was not a real photographer, so he never made money with this. So he was uh, uh, MC in one of these big Boston music halls, and he was he became friends with with all these big names of of, of rock and roll like Ron Wood from the Stones or um, Rod Stewart, and he was and he was part of these groups, and uh, he always got invited to 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 spend time with them, hanging around or, or being on a, a tour. So, and I think he never uh, had the uh, idea to to sell these pictures, and that's why these these big rock stars they trusted him. So, and 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 these pictures they were not never really important for him. It was just hanging around with these people, and he had his cameras always with him, but he never processed it. And uh, during COVID, his partner um, she decided, okay, now we have to do something because in in this house, it was like um, um, somebody who was addicted to alcohol. So he 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 was hiding all these roles in 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 that house. And then she said, okay, we have to do something. So and she started uh, GoFundMe. And that worked really well. So for all that processing, all that digitizing, and this is a still an ongoing job. We're we're nearly finished with with that process. But now the next step is to make that uh, accessible through as as a book or exhibition. And there are, are some people they want to do. A, uh, they're still doing a documentary about that story. So it's an amazing story. So we oh, yeah. are processed nearly four thousand rolls of 35 millimeter film and um we ended up nearly with 100,000 images with it's it's a lot of personal stuff because sure. the story behind that man uh, he's originally from Alabama he's a black american and he came to Boston when he was 13 years old so and he started his life become a um, he did a lot of several things. So he worked in a bar or he, he was a hairdresser or something. And then he got involved with that music scene. And uh, he always ha was interested in photography, but he never became a professional photographer. So um, it was uh, so today we have all our cell phones or we're taking thousands of pictures. But at, at this time, he had to shoot with his 35 millimeter camera. And uh, he uh, and he was always tied on money, and um, so that's why he kept all these roles. And now we have the chance to process these ones, and yeah, and some of them there are accessible because we had we had a lot of media coverage of that. There was yeah. big interest in that story as well, and and somebody is working on a really interesting documentary about the, this person itself. So that person itself is a 
is is is, is a cool story, and then these hundred thousand images that's another big story well well it is a big story, but there must be a real thrill in that too, and knowing that you're you're kind of you're, you know you're you're seeing something for the first time, something that's never been seen before, and in some of these cases you know something that's potentially historic on top of that right yeah yeah so the and 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 I was the guy who had the honor, I definitely have to say that, to to see these pictures the first time on on the screen, processed, digitized, and when you see and when you recognize Ron Wood and Charlie Watts or from the Stones or Rod Stewart in a hotel room just hanging out and having having fun, this is this is uh, such a great thing because this is. This is these musicians we all know. This is part of our culture, and this is so amazing to have to do that kind of thing. And there were mm-hmm. other things as well. So he was he was traveling a lot to Europe, mm-hmm. and I'm originally from Germany, and uh, we moved to Canada some years ago, and uh, so I recognized a lot of a lot of places that he was in Germany. So I said, Oh wow, that's really cool. I know this place. This is a place I've been before so that was and we had a really good and still we have a really good relationship and there was a time thing because he's um, he's really in a, in a bad shape he has a, a, a cancer and he needs treatment for that and it's so um, that's why we were in a hurry to get all these things done to uh, because he was now he was interested to see this picture but he's um, unfortunately he's really in a bad shape and Jeez. he needs he needs really really uh, expensive treatments and that's why we want to help him uh, to make some money out of these pictures and and yeah that's another part of that story it's yeah. a long story we can talk about that i think for hours and all that uh, yeah but i had the honor to be in boston twice in the last two years and um to pick this up and to return all these uh roles because you four thousand roles you cannot ship and so that's why we we dr- i drove to boston and and returned all these films back to him and he was he was just uh, yeah, he had he had no words. He was just so impressed to see all these pictures printed or digitized, and there was um, I think that was so important for him to see his work now that comes to an end. So he he saw okay, there is somebody is interested. He wants to do a book. Somebody wants to do a documentary, and that's really it's a cool cool story. And I'm I'm so happy that I had the honor to to do this job. Well, I can imagine. Yeah, it's, it's such a neat story. And the one thing I want to ask you about, too, though, and, and maybe this is about, you know, some of the individuals who send you film, film they find in old boxes or up in an attic. And I would imagine in some cases, maybe there's a reason why a roll of film never got developed. And, and you know, the idea that there's some some secrets, some family secrets contained in, in some of these, is, is that some of what you guys end up running into? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> uh, there was a... Uh, it's it's not happen, happen every day, but it's happened once in a while. So uh, the story is that uh, grandma and grandpa are on a honeymoon trip, and they're doing pictures that you couldn't process in these days, maybe mm, 50 yeah. years ago. You cannot go to a, a, a drugstore. So, yes, we, we definitely got these kind of pictures. And you won't show these pictures to your children or to your your family. And that uh, that was the thing that why they 
they just kept it in in their in their storage or in their in, in the attic and and mostly they forgot about that and and now when when yeah they when people cleaning up parents house and they say oh what's this and then they will send it to film rescue and uh well we have our, a special order form and then we let them know okay there's something um on it you have to say yes or no if you want to see that and uh that happens once in a while and but uh a lot of time it's just people just forgot it it was it, it's it's somewhere and these small roles um maybe they were not really important to them so we got a lot of these um let's let's say these family stuff so we got uh, christmas we got uh trips to uh um uh, vacation trips and this is this is the 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 normal the standard stuff we normally got so and this is and but on the other hand these people are so happy to see maybe let's say their parents when they were in the 30s and 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 now they are elderly people and uh, for a lot of people that's a big thing to to have these people have these pictures now processed and and have them and, and make them visible oh, i yeah. think that's really important for them and yeah. um and, and and for us it's it's every day and and i i i'm, I'm sure i can also speak for my coworkers. it's definitely every day that we 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 got some some reviews or somebody wrote us an email and he and, and say oh we are just so thankful because you you brought something back that was hidden somewhere and now we saw our our family members our grand grandparents our parents um, in a in a, in a different way and sometimes it's only maybe a few pictures but sure, it, yeah. for them it, it makes a lot so no that's yeah, no doubt. Well, folks want to read more about the work you do, or or maybe you know someone could could use your services. It's uh, filmrescue.com. dot com. Uh, quite a story, Gerald. Thank you so much. For making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. All okay. the best, Gerald. Take care. Okay, bye bye. Bye. There you go. That's uh, Gerald Freyer, film archivist at Film Rescue International, uh, based in the old bank building in uh, tiny old Indian Head, Saskatchewan. And so there's a whole backstory to how they ended up there, and it, it's, it all stems from the founder of this company, Greg Miller, who had gone off to Toronto, was involved in the music scene, and kind of got into this side of things as almost like a side job, Then it became kind of a main job for him, but got tired of being in Toronto, went back to the prairies, that's where he was from, or his parents were, and then found this building, the old bank building in Indian Head, Saskatchewan, bought it, set up this company. And they're just kind of doing their thing for a while. And it was about probably 20 or maybe 25 years ago. Uh, they got a call from someone with the Kodak company and understood that this company, you know, had a reputation for doing this kind of work. They added Film Rescue to their referral list and it just it took off from there. So when it comes to, you know, the, these stories of these old cameras being found, that's who they contact now. Good afternoon. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our telephone number 403-974-8255. We'll get back to more of your phone calls later in this hour. Got a few other things to get to as well. Uh, this year will mark the 55th anniversary of the uh, original moon landing and the Apollo era. 
And even though that may seem like a, a bygone era, we're about to kick off a new phase of moon interest, moon exploration, uh, and hopefully uh, not too far off, more moon landings. Now, it's been an awkward beginning, though, to this year in this new phase. Uh, the Peregrine Moonlander, Astrobiotic Technologies, uh, was striving to become the first private lunar lander. Uh, so they had a successful launch, but uh, their spacecraft has run into some serious problems, uh, what they're calling a critical loss of propellant. Uh, the company says the team is working to try to stabilize this loss, but given the situation, we have prioritized maximizing the science and data we can capture. We're currently assessing what alternative mission profiles may be feasible at this time. So disappointing news. Uh, but that shouldn't take away from uh, all of the excitement around what's happening uh, with all of this moon exploration. Of course, the culminated, we get the Artemis II mission coming up. There's going to be a Canadian astronaut who's going to be part of that, hopefully launching uh, late this year. Uh, four astronauts set to perform basically a, a flyby of the moon. So joining us to talk about uh, the significance uh, of all of this and, and what we can still learn from from all of this. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Phil Langell, director of the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory of the University of Calgary, associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the U of C. Phil, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. So like I say, a little bit of disappointing news with the Peregrine Moonlander, but, um, you know, I mean, given everything that's happening around uh, all of this, I mean, how, how disappointing is it? Well, I mean, it just it just speaks to the fact that uh, space travel is really, really hard. And every time you put something up there, uh, regardless of whether it works 100% the way you planned or not, you, you learn something every time. Yeah. And it's a gigantic, huge learning curve that everybody's on. And so failures are not great, but if you can learn something from it, and uh, and prevent it from happening again, then you've you've really learned something valuable. Let's talk about why why it all matters. And I mean, for you, kind of coming up a part of that that Apollo generation, right? And you know, being young <laughs> and and seeing all of that and just the excitement of it. You know, yeah. why, why are you so passionate about it? Well, I mean, there's this. It's it's thick with all sorts of different uh, layers. I mean, there's the technology and the, the capabilities and the developments that have been happening. Uh, I, you know, I like to think of it as uh, a way to bring people together. Um, we're, we're talking about, um, um, you know, getting, getting women involved, getting uh, all different cultures involved. I think that's fantastic. Uh, lots of different countries working together. I mean, it's just, it's just really great to think that, you know, despite all of the things that separate us here on, on Earth, uh, there's a coming together that happens when we talk about space exploration. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the list goes on and on. It's just a, it's a, a really hopeful uh, aspect to me to, to think that, uh, yeah, there's, it's, a, it's so hard, but uh, it's so worth it to give it a try. And, and, you know, this time around, I mean, we got uh, Jeremy Hansen, who's going to be a part of the Artemis II mission, right, a Canadian and Albertan. So, yeah. right, to have some, you know, some Canadian involvement, too, there's that, that sense of national pride that's that's a part of this now. Yeah, I'm not taking any, anything away from Jeremy, but remember that uh, a lot of Canadian engineers and scientists have been involved in the space program already. Mm -hmm. uh, the Canadian Space Agency is putting a lot of money into and expertise into uh, into the whole Artemis mission, and I think uh, Jeremy's just going to be the the 
you know, the the reminder that Canada plays a really, really important role in all of this and and, and, uh, and could still uh, be a major role going forward. And I think we all have to uh, get behind the Canadian Space Agency and, and, uh, and give them our support for what they're doing. Yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, even in 2023, just, you know, the, the obstacles we need to overcome to do all of this. You know, the, the fact that we were able to do all of this 55 years ago, I mean, it just, you know, it underscores how much went into that and how remarkable it really was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the, the biggest computer that uh, people had, engineers had at, the, at that time, fits in your back pocket now. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. It's un- unbelievable to think the, how the technology has changed. And that's just the computing technology, uh, uh, you know, the engineering behind the, the engines and, uh, and, and the boosters and the telemetry and the communication and, uh, and all of that technical end of it, too, uh, has just grown and grown and grown over the, the, the last couple of decades, for sure, with this space shuttle program. But like I say, um, the People have learned so much in doing all of these things, and half of them fail, and half of them don't work quite right. And you know, there's a there's a chunk that work out really well, and uh, all of that is really encouraging. I, I kind of equate it to if you're a golfer, <laughs> right. and you have a really lousy round of golf, but you hit that one good shot, keeps you coming back. It's the same thing with the space program. Uh, you know, for those who kind of feel like, well, you know, the moon, we've, we've been there, we've done that. Uh, why are we going back? What more can we learn? Like, what what is the point of all of this now? Yeah, well, <clears throat> living on the Earth is so easy. <laughs> you get up in the morning and you're surrounded by air. You go to the sink, you get a drink of water, food out of your fridge. Oh, my gosh. Take all of that away and go to space. You have to bring everything with you. You have to bring the air that you breathe, the water you drink, the food that you eat. You have to collect the garbage, and, and you have to plan everything out, and everything happens in slow-mo. And so the fact that these astronauts from the 60s went to the moon, you know, a week-long mission to get out there, spend some time on the moon and get back all in one piece, um, that's that was just the uh, proof of concept that that it is possible to do all of this hard stuff. And now that we know we can do it, and we've got much better technology now, and and uh, we've got lots of different ideas, and people are now building machines that can actually orbit around the moon. That's one of the things the Apollo astronauts didn't have. They brought along with them a a lunar orbiter. I don't know if your audience remembers, but two astronauts went down to the surface of the moon, and one lonely astronaut orbited the moon the whole time that they were down there and took care of the spaceship that was going to get them home. But this time, uh, there's going to be a little permanent... uh, call it a space station that is being built and it's going to be in orbit around the moon. It's not going to be permanently manned, but it's going to be like a little um, uh, uh, outpost that's there when they need it. So when they travel to the moon to do this uh, exploration, they will arrive. There will be a cabin there that's got uh, supplies in it. They will regroup and then they will be able to descend down to the moon, do what they want to do on the surface of the moon, get back up to that little space station. It's called the Gateway. 
station. Uh, Canada's got a big part in the in the design and build of the of the Gateway uh, Lunar Orbiting Station, and so that's that's uh, a totally new thing that uh, is going to be implemented in this whole Artemis mission that wasn't part of the Apollo uh, plan initially. And that's you know that just speaks to better ideas, and we can we can hang out longer on the moon. We can now start to do a little more geology. We can search for minerals. We can search for resources. Maybe those resources, if they're there, if, if we've uh, done our remote reconnaissance uh, uh, analysis properly, there's enticing uh, amounts of, uh, of resources that are on the moon that if found and are accessible could extend people's time on the moon. Maybe a, a permanent moon base yeah. could be uh, erected down the road and then that's you know our first stepping stone to, to getting to other planets in the solar system. So it's the start. It's just the start of a, a big, long, cool picture. Yeah. of space exploration. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, a bit of a setback today, but it's going to be a big year on this front for sure. Uh, Phil, we'll leave it there. Appreciate uh, your input on all this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Awesome. Thanks for thanks for chatting with me. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Phil Langell, director of the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory, the University of Calgary associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the U of C. So we're going back to the moon. I do think, you know, and it's funny to see, right? And, you know, the fact that it's still difficult to do in 2023... I think only kind of adds some fuel to the conspiracy fires that maybe we didn't actually go in 1969. Like, there are a lot of people that still believe that. And on the surface, uh, pardon the pun, I mean, you know, you could almost kind of envision why, you know, given the stakes, how high the stakes were between the U.S. and the Soviets in the Cold War and getting there first, uh, that there may be some motivation for the Americans to, to claim that they got there first, even if maybe they didn't. I mean, the funny thing about that, though, is well, you just think about that for a moment. The reason why there would be that motivation is the reason why it would be impossible to fake. I mean, the Soviets would know whether or not the Americans went to the moon. Like, do you really think in the midst of the Cold War and both of those nations determined to get there first, that one's just going to play along because the other faked it? Like, if the Russians had claimed that they got to the moon first and then the Americans had some evidence that, well, no, they didn't. They just faked that. You think the Americans would have just uh, been quiet about it and just said, okay, well, hey, good on them? <laughs> of course not. Uh, the Americans uh, would have been uh, eager to go public with that, to humiliate the Soviets and then do it for real. So just that, to me, uh, is, would be the biggest argument against that. I mean, the fact that they went to the moon nine times, uh, all of those were faked. Or the times they went to the moon, uh, like Apollo 13 went to the moon, was supposed to land on the moon, came back. Uh, so given all of that, it's just, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't see any evidence for that. But like I say, I think some of these issues they're running into today, it just kind of lends to that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.